this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Emma Slowly about her story, The Cassandras, which appeared in issue 21 of The Common. Emma Slowly's work has appeared in Catapult, Literary Hub, Yemisee, Joyland, Structo, and the Master's Review Anthology, among many other publications. She is a McDowell follow, Fellow and Breadloaf Scholar. Her debut novel, Disaster's Children, was published in 2019. Born in Australia, Emma now divides her time between the United States and the city of Merida, Mexico. Emma, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Would you set the scene for our conversation, describe where you're calling from, what it's like? Sure. Um, So my husband and I are on a kind of epic summer road trip at the moment. Uh, We're based in in Palm Springs at the moment, which um, is lovely most of the year, but is like a thousand degrees at the moment. (laughs) So we decided to get in the car and and sort of work from the road uh, while exploring California. Um, So at the moment, we're at a friend's place in Sonoma. um, And it's this kind of old rhododendron farm with these wooden cottages that are in the middle of the forest of redwoods. So it's completely idyllic and I never want to leave. (laughs) That sounds incredible. Yeah, you're definitely the first person on the podcast uh, calling in from a rhododendron farm, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read the first few paragraphs for us? Sure, I would love to. The Cassandras. The cemetery where she meets him after work is both vertiginous and claustrophobic. The graves are crowded closely together, like huddled children cowering from punishment. Then there is a short stretch of lawn tilting to the cliff's edge, and beyond that, a sickening void she imagines rushing out to meet her. Why would it occur to someone to build a cemetery on a steep escarpment above the Pacific Ocean? The weed-hemmed tombstones are cracked and bleached. No one has been buried here for ages. They're all in the fashionable new cemetery out near the airport. The paths are strewn with shards of glass, the torn petals of sad plastic flowers, scraps of trash and shriveled cigarette box. And the whole thing might have an air of tawdriness if not for that view. Blinding blue sky sliced horizontally by the cliff's edge, the wild ocean below, the audacious swaggering drama of it. Oh God, come away from the edge. Alyssa calls out to him. 
It's one of the regular places that she's always felt dizzy in the vicinity of that void. He laughed in an antic way, his longish surface hair whipping around his face. There's something different about his mood. She can tell before she even gets close. Something anticipatory, like the hell's breath before a storm. It's an optical illusion, remember? When she's close enough, he pulls her into his chest and kisses the top of her head. The edge is actually way over there. She glances toward the clearly visible precipice and wonders at how two people can see the same physical object in such different ways. Thanks so much for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you just, just describe what the piece is about? Sure. Um, so it's about this young American woman, Alyssa, uh, who's living in Australia with her boyfriend, Dan. Um, and he's this sort of, you know, he's his dream. He's, he's kind, he's good looking, he's wildly in love with her. Mm-hmm. But shortly after Dan proposes, Alyssa kind of starts experiencing these feelings of dread and fear out of nowhere. Um, And as the story progresses, this fear becomes more and more focused on this idea that her boyfriend means her harm, even though there's like no real evidence of this, you know, or maybe there is. So the, the story kind of plays with this idea of, I guess, how much women are required to rely on their own instincts and, you know, also the stories of other women in order to, assess danger and and how that can sort of start to feel like a form of gaslighting, like are my fears founded or is it all in my own head? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, That's interesting that you use that term because I sort of have a hunch about the title, but I wonder if you would explain the title of the piece for us. It was, it actually had a different title to start with. It was originally called Sisters. Mm-hmm. Um and that's, you know, both because there are nuns in the and a convent in the second half of the story, but, you know, also to suggest this idea of sisterhood and mm-hmm. kind of womanly solidarity. But I think from there it kind of evolved into uh, this idea of a specific group of women, uh, these sort of like omniscient voices who are trying to sound a warning. Um, and then, of course, you know, the best example of that kind of futile Warning is Cassandra, who, you know, famously was cursed with the ability to see the future, but not to be believed. Right. So as soon as I kind of made that connection, I was like, yeah, that's what I want it to be called instead. Yeah, it's it's a great title. And it just, yeah, the whole story has this feeling of this sort of larger mythology to it. Like you said, like the sort of mm-hmm. danger that women encounter or hear about other women, women encountering and not just violence, but sort of like, you know patriarchy or unfairness or, Mm -hmm. you know, mistreatment and that kind of thing. So I I think that's, I think it's a great title. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I would love to hear how you came to write this story. Like what inspired you to start work on it and how it came together? Well, I've been at the time that I started it, I I think I've been, I've been thinking about this sort of generalized, like low level fear that a lot of women walk around with. Um, you know, we're taught from a really early age to be wary of strangers, of, mm-hmm. you know, like dangerous situations, walking alone, all that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, to always have situational awareness, I think that's something that most women are kind of, that is very ingrained in us. Um, and I just thought about what about if the danger is coming from much closer to home, though? So, yeah, with that in mind, I wanted to explore this idea of a woman who's, you know, usual non-specific low-level 
fear of violence becomes sharpened into this very specific fear that her own partner is a danger to her um, and sort of how she tries to talk herself out of that and I guess how the world's trying to talk her out of it. Um, and, I, you know, I just wanted to keep, I think one of my aims with it was wanting to keep the reader on the back foot so they're never mm-hmm. quite sure which dangers are real and which she's imagining. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time that I started writing it, I feel like the Me Too movement was kind of at its height and, you know, there was the women's marches and all this kind of thing. So there was this wider conversation about, you know, women being believed. And that seemed to me just like a really potent kind of starting point for, for this story. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because it's not so much about whether she's believed or not in the story, but whether we believe that she's right, right. which is it, it's such an interesting role for the reader to be in. And I think, I, I like you mentioned, sort of having having us on the back foot, like not really sure whether she should be mm-hmm. scared or not. And I really mm-hmm. felt there's a moment where they're camping and, and there's a snake. And, and we have already discussed in the story that snakes in Australia can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um and she's not scared of the snake, but she is scared of Dan. And, you know, it was just such an interesting twist, I thought. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I really wanted to sort of keep, um, you know, playing with that idea of, you know, is this woman just paranoid or does she have a kind of correct um, fear assessment here? You know, the snake is not as much of a danger to her as her boyfriend potentially is. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I did like to sort of play with that idea of the reader not quite knowing, you know, and also almost the reader is almost being gaslighted themselves or yeah. or having to question that. Right, because, I mean, a, a poisonous snake in Australia in fiction is pretty close to Chekhov's gun. <laughs> you, she has to go off into the woods to go to the bathroom and you're just like really expecting that snake to come up. And when it right, doesn't... Right. You know, you you know you're questioning things, yeah. Right. <laughs> totally. Throughout the story are these very short, separate, italicized sentences that begin, remember when. Mm-hmm. I, I think you sort of mentioned these a little bit, but how do you feel like these sentences function in the story? How did you decide to include them? How do you, did you decide, like, which ones to include? So I always, I always knew I wanted those, I call them little interstitials to... Mm-hmm. To function as a kind of Greek chorus, um, nice. that you know there'd be this sort of omniscient voice that would come in whenever our protagonist was beginning to doubt her own sanity. So that's sort of how I decided where to place them in the story. You know, I tried to yeah, I tried to sort of make it so that they occurred at a time when you're as a reader feeling like, listen, this this lady's just sort of losing it. Um, and that it is all in her head, and then to have this little Greek chorus coming in with this, hey, remember when, um, mm. and, you know, citing a, a sort of what you assume is is a story from real life that is generally about violence, you know, enacted upon women. So um, I really liked, I, I suppose you could kind of read them as like Alyssa's own inner voice or subconscious, but... I also kind of like the, the device of using the question, you know, remember when, kind of involves the reader, like we were just talking about. It, like it almost makes them complicit in some way. You know, you knew about all these things too. You read about them, but 
but you kind of chose to ignore them. So yeah, I, I think that's why I decided to present them as these, they're almost a little sort of dispassionate dispatches, like a little news item, because I felt like that kind of made the information in those interstitials kind of more horrifying. Yeah, they really, I mean, in, in so many ways, they just reminded me of like the experience of being a woman, which is, as you said, sort of constantly taking in new information about new ways that you should be concerned about right. your safety or what might be done to other women around you, you know? Um, right. So it almost felt to me like, uh, you know, I was just thinking about how, how you consume the news sort of passively. Like you might see something when you're scrolling online or you might hear something mm -hmm. on the radio when you're driving and those mm -hmm. things just sort of go in your brain and, and then, yeah, they might, they might pop up at different times and, yeah, it does feel it make it is sort of destabilizing for the reader. I think like what's true, what's not. Um, right, you're getting this information out of it all the time. Should you do something with it? You know, right, right. Or does it just become part of the sort of background noise of mm -hmm. of life? Is that oh well, of course there are these horrible things happening to women and children. And I, and I did actually the most of them. I think most of them were kind of you know based on things I had actually read. So. Um, you know, ripped from the headline, law and order. Yeah, yeah. None of them, unfortunately, did I find very difficult to believe. Right, right. <laughs> unfortunately. So yeah. this story has such an intense, slow-burning tension to it, dread and horror, and it sort of boils up through what should kind of on the surface level be a nice love story between these two people. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it must have taken a lot of careful work and revision to get that balance right so it keeps building without you know without overwhelming the story or becoming sort of mm -hmm. cartoonish can you talk a little bit about that process of sort of getting it right whether that's in revision or in the early drafts sure um well thank you for saying that because i it honestly is one of my always my sort of big aim with especially with short fiction is to create this rising sense of dread mm -hmm. and i think when writers can do that, it's just such a wonderful tool to use to kind of just keep a reader on the edge of their seat. Um, I'm not really a consumer of horror, but I loved the idea of using some of the tropes of horror to tell this story. Like, you know, there's that classic trope of a person who suspects their loved one has been replaced or, or has turned evil somehow. Um, and... I also am quite drawn to that the sort of claustrophobic horror of um, the home, which is supposed to be this very safe environment, obviously sort of turning dangerous. So, uh, yeah, I guess I kind of like borrowed those tropes to try and get that, that tension building. Mm -hmm. um, and another, another technique I think I tried to use was, you know, lulling the reader into thinking everything was fine, that, that Alyssa's just overreacting or, you know, being hysterical and then using those interstitials to suggest that, hey, maybe everything isn't fine <laughs> after all. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think as always, it really helps to kind of study you know, how brilliant writers pull off whatever it is you're trying to do with the story. <laughs> <Right. And> so, <laughs> um, you know, and like Kelly Link, um, mm -hmm. Carmen Maria Machado, Shirley Jackson, obviously, you know, writers like that who all really use rising tension and dread to, to great effects. And I think another one of the stories that really influenced this was um, Joyce Carol Oates's 
classic, where are you going, where have you been, um, which is just this masterclass in rising dreads that's also very sort of rooted in the domestic. Um, so, yeah, just definitely just kind of looking at what other masters ha had done in that kind of realm. Um, yeah, it really helped me to kind of help build that dress, which, yes, I hope it does. Yeah. yeah, now that you say that, it does have that feeling of a, a Carmen Maria Machado story for sure. Mm -hmm. um, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. I, I, I pray. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you work on some revision with our editor-in-chief, Jennifer Acker, on this? I'm not quite sure. Uh, yes, we did do a little. Yes, we, there was definitely some back and forth. She was fantastic. Um, one of the things we did talk about, interestingly, was um, whether or not to keep those little remember when moments. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm a writer who really loves being edited and, you know, I have been an editor in the past myself and mm -hmm. I'm usually extremely open to, to anything that obviously is going to improve my story. Um, but it was an instance where I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to fight for these because I really feel like they're kind of um, a really integral, crucial part mm -hmm. of the story, even though they might seem a bit extraneous. I did kind of think that they they did add something to to that kind of sense of dread. So um and then in the end she also thought that too. So yeah, it was yeah. kind of great that we were able to <laughs> to come together on that that feeling. Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought that up. I think that's like a really mm -hmm important and interesting part of the revision process that people don't talk about a lot, but sometimes, you know, things are questioned in the editing process and that doesn't mean that they're mm -hmm. bad at need to go, but it might just mean that they need to be, yeah, talked over more or, you know, I know sometimes we give writers a note and if the writer pushes back, then we know that that's like, that's something that's really important to the story. And right. You right. know, even if it's not hitting us just right, it will hit someone else just right. Or it's part of the vision, you know, and, you know, I think, we often ask questions when we're editing, like, like, what do you, what is your intention with these? What do you mm -hmm. hope they're doing to sort of see if that's, what's really coming across? Yeah. Right. And I think as a writer, you need to be prepared to kind of defend the things that are truly important to you in a story mm -hmm. and to be able to let go of the things that, that maybe aren't. And, you know, the majority of writers, uh, editors I've ever worked with that they're, they're usually right when they point something out and, um, you know, they're just such a crucial part of making a story sing. So, yeah, I, I think kind of just being aware of that as a writer, of, you know, what's worth holding on to and what's worth just kind of letting go is very important. Definitely. Yeah. It, it seems like a lot of your fiction deals with interpersonal situations, social groups, those dynamics. Do those situations just come to you or is it sort of your intention to address them? Like what, what kind of dynamics interest you as a writer that you, that you find you want to write about? Oh, um, I love this question because I, it is something I think about a lot is, you know, trying to identify like the themes and ideas and dynamics that, that kind of recur in my writing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when I started out, I, I really wasn't kind of, fully plugged into my own, you know, impulses and what I was interested in. I was just sort of exploring all kinds of different things. And as I've grown as a writer, I think I do, I'm starting to see that, starting to pay attention to like 
what are these ideas that keep cropping up, the things that I keep returning to? Um, and I think one of them, one of the things that I love that I find a bit difficult to kind of articulate, but is this idea of a, of a character who's, who's kind of torn between two conflicting desires, the, the sort of yearning for connection um, and a, a yearning, a need for solitude. And I really love stories that take place in that kind of that weird little space of, between kind of wanting connection and wanting to be left alone, I guess. So I, I, think, I feel like a lot of my characters have those, have those kind of conflicts going on in their lives and that they reverberate, that, that sort of conflict reverberates throughout their lives. So, yeah, that's definitely, that's the sort of, definitely a kind of mood I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, as I think I mentioned, I kind of, I really love stories that are, that are rooted in domestic realism, mm-hmm. but um, there's just something about the world that's slightly off kilter, if you know what I mean. Like there's yeah. that, that sort of idea of an altered world that's very similar to our own, but there's just something slightly off kilter about it. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're definitely, those, those are the two things that I'm kind of, I feel like I keep returning to over and over again just to sort of keep exploring. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Your novel, Disasters Children, came out in 2019, mm-hmm. and it sounds so fascinating. Would you talk a little bit about it? Sure. Um, it seems like so long ago now. Um, <laughs> it, I, I, always wanted, I always knew that I wanted to write a kind of pre-apocalyptic novel um, that's set in a world that's sort of teetering on the brink of disaster. And, you know, that goes back to what I was just saying about altered worlds. And so mm-hmm. uh, this story is, is set in a world very like our own, but there is just something slightly off about it. Um, and I remember at the time I was starting to write it, we've been reading about these billionaires buying up tracts of land in places like New Zealand, um, you know, sort of basically doomsday prepping, <laughs> doomsday prepping for billionaires. And... I was fascinated by this idea that um, there's this sort of level of our society that, you know, thinks they're going to buy their way out of the climate crisis. Um, although I guess with the sort of like recent like billionaire space race, maybe they really are going to. But <laughs> at the time, it was sort of like, wow, this is just such a bizarre worldview to sort of bizarre but understandable, I guess. Like mm-hmm. to, to use your wealth and privilege to kind of just retreat and, um, you know, try and avert this global crisis for at least you and, and your family. So um, I decided to set the story in this sort of luxury, like survivalist ranch in Oregon um, with this group of, you know, wealthy ranchers who are trying to like ride out the climate crisis. And the protagonist is this young woman called Marlo you know, who grows up on this ranch and she's caught between her loyalty to, to the family and to her 
to the place um, and this kind of desire to break out of this gilded cage, maybe do something about the coming apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. I didn't really kind of intend to hold a mirror up to our world or anything, but um, definitely a lot of the disasters I wrote about in that book are kind of have either happened or are, you know, close to coming true. So Mm. it's, you know, I think one of the perils of writing climate fiction is the crisis just moves a lot faster than publishing does. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, that's so true. (laughs) Yeah. It seems like there's an element of of isolation to that story, like this isolated community. Does that feel Mm -hmm. different to you now after so much pandemic isolation? Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, obviously it was written way before any of that happened, but, yeah, like the life of the ranch is kind of the life that, you know, a lot of at least privileged people lived last year where they were just kind of cut off from the world and um, just within their own small communities with this kind of like ephemeral menace happening outside the the compounds, if you will. So yeah, that definitely kind of brought that into focus. I think there's perhaps like a small section in the book, you know, about a some kind of pandemic thing that is happening elsewhere. Um, but yeah, certainly it wasn't something I, I concentrated on for that book. But yeah, I think the, the idea of isolation and that we're sort of all on our own in some way has really been underscored by this this last for year. Sure. And yeah, I can't say it's made me super optimistic about you know, how humans are going to band together to yeah. solve the rest of our crises. <laughs> yeah, who who gets to weather it in relative comfort and who doesn't. Right, right. Yeah. Well, there was that, there's that great essay that was in the house the other day about who gets to be comfortable. I'm not sure if you read it, but... Oh, where did you say it was? Uh, I think it was in Lit Hub. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's basically about, like, uh, you know, the Western world kind of insisting on our own comfort um, at the expense of other people's comfort, obviously. So it was kind of, it takes the stance of like whether we should give up air conditioning or not. It's kind of the right. little kernel of the idea. But yeah, it's basically about who gets to be comfortable and who doesn't. Yeah. You wrote a great essay for Craft last year about how powerless the p- publishing process can feel. <laughs> waiting for agents and then waiting for editors, the fate of your writing sort of suddenly out of your hands. And it really spoke to me since I'm currently in that stage with my book, you know, out to agents. And, and it feels so strange and it's like disorienting not to be steering the project anymore after you've been in the driver's seat for so long. You know, you've been the only person working on it for so long. So I was just wondering, like, how did you get over or sort of give in to the parts of writing and publishing that aren't in your control? Was that the essay about the, like, tarot cards and superstition? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah, I basically wrote that essay. <laughs> I was sort of hoping to get tips from other writers who were like, better at it than I was. Um, but it was super interesting how, like, how many of those writers sort of managed that helplessness through like rituals and superstitions and, um, you know, it really sort of highlighted how much of publishing is out of your control. 
And I, I guess I already knew that going in, but it was just, you know, amazing hearing these really high profile writers who also have those moments of despair where they've sent the project off and it's, you know, no longer in their hands. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think one of the only antidotes to that kind of helplessness is just to keep working. It, like it's really trite, boring advice, but um, I think once a piece of writing's out of your hands, out of my hands, I, I just try to think like I wish it well, but that no longer belongs to me. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that belongs to you now is this new thing, is you know your process and the hopefully kind of transformative great thing that comes out of that. But yeah, definitely get that kind of Zen thinking about well, this is no longer mine, to some degree, right. um, is, is kind of helpful to me. And then I can just move on to the next thing and, and try not to fret about it. But, of course, I fret about it like everybody else. Right. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't yet started writing the next thing, so I think that might be sort of my mistake. Uh, like yeah, like if I had the next thing all lined up, maybe it'd be easier. <laughs> you're in the bad place, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I definitely recommend having another project to get immersed in. And, you know, I think maybe people who are entering publishing newly don't really realize how glacial the pace of everything mm-hmm. is. And, you know, it's nobody's fault, obviously, but it just is an incredibly slow industry. Um, and you can write as quickly as you want, but yes. the, the other moving parts of the industry are, are not going to sort of, you know, fall in line with that. So. Yeah, patience is obviously a big virtue, but <laughs> and yeah. apparently tarot cards and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you're not writing fiction, you also work as a travel writer. I used to just fantasize about being a travel writer <laughs> when I was young. It just seems like so much fun. Could you tell us a little bit about it? What is it really like? Is it as glamorous as I imagined? <laughs> um, honestly, yes. <laughs> it kind of is. It's. I mean, obviously, it's this tremendous privilege to, mm-hmm. you know, go jaunting around the world and then get to write about it and get paid to do it. Um, and I don't do it as much anymore. I am definitely focusing more on fiction. But I, you know, and I came to fiction writing relatively late, but I always kind of justify that to myself that I, I got to see the world at like a relatively young age. Um and, you know, most people doing the amount of travel that I have done, you know, they're not doing it until their careers are over, you know, when they're retired or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I felt just incredibly lucky to be able to do that and to just see so many incredible places and, um, you know, get these pretty short little bursts of immersion into other cultures. And um but there is one, one thing that my husband and I, because he was also a travel writer at the same time, uh, we always found it kind of amusing that we go on these incredible trips, you know, and stay in these beautiful places, have these kind of multiple once-in-a-lifetime experiences, and, um, and then we come home to this to our tiny little shabby tenement building in the West Village, <laughs> and we drag our suitcases up five flights of stairs because it was a right. difficult walk-up. Wow. Um, and, you know, writing's pretty famously badly paid. So. Yeah. so, you know, on the one hand, there was this, yes, incredibly glamorous lifestyle. And on the other hand, it was 
yeah, dragging as suitcases up five flights of stairs and living in an apartment that had a bitch and, you know, the, the classic, like, combined bathroom kitchen. Right? <laughs> seen one of those in New York City, but... Yeah. I've never heard the term. <laughs> <laughs> I have seen it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a classic. Well, I mean, it's, I don't well, think there's that many of them left, but we had one, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's a humbling dichotomy, I guess. Oh my god, it was. It's very funny. It, it sounds like you don't, you and your husband don't do very much travel writing anymore. But I was just sort of curious. I don't know if you have anything to say about this, but how Instagram and the sort of like influencer culture has changed the idea of travel writing, or or do people mm-hmm. still want travel writing, or do they just want fancy photos now? I certainly towards the end of our sort of uh, travel writing career, I guess there was definitely a kind of new feeling coming into the industry. And a few of the trips that I went on sort of towards the end, they were absolutely full of like Instagrammer, these sort of Instagram stars that um, had amassed, you know, millions of followers mm-hmm. and the everybody wanted to host them and to sort of have them um, come and, yeah, take gorgeous photos of their gorgeous selves in these settings. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it certainly – I don't think it's necessarily negative, but it certainly yeah. felt like a, a major shift in the industry. And I don't, I don't know whether it's still as big a thing now, but I imagine it is. I mean, I think a lot of people these days use Instagram at, like they used to consume magazines. And that's interesting. A lot of yeah, Instagram pages are kind of like magazines. Mm-hmm. So definitely, the industry has shifted there, and unfortunately, along with that shift comes this sort of, um, you know, less of a desire for narratives, sort of written narratives. And so, if you're a travel writer who loves writing like really long form travel pieces, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're a bit more out of luck these days because there's not as much of that going on. So yeah, it definitely, I mean, social media has obviously changed a lot about our world and it definitely has changed travel for sure. Yeah. So one last question we ask everyone, Mm. what are you working on now? What's next from you? Mm. Um, I'm working on my third novel, but I'm also uh, on a final round of edits for my second novel, which... um, my agent is going to hopefully take out on submission in the fall. Awesome. Um, yeah. And it's called The Island of Last Things. And it's got a sort of speculative uh, bent, a little like Disaster Children. But probably more speculative, actually. But mm-hmm. it's um, about a zookeeper called Camille who's working at the world's last zoo, oh, which cool. is... Um, set on this highly militarized island and it's kind of about how her life is transformed when this new keeper called Sailor arrives and Sailor is this sort of rabble rouser who involves Camille in this deadly potentially deadly scheme to break one of the animals out of the zoo Um, so obviously yes it has these kind of Mm -hmm. it's quite speculative but it's also pretty literary. Like it, I think it's right. a lot about female friendship mm-hmm. um, and our relationship with animals, which is a thing that I've always found very fascinating. Um, and yeah, just sort of about like people trying to reclaim their humanity in the face of like a world that's 
trying to crush them in various ways. So, yeah, it's got some really interesting themes and it's a very cool world, very interesting setting. So, yeah, I really love these characters and I'm super excited for people to read yeah. it, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I th- yeah, that sounds great. I think, you know, <laughs> when you have human characters reacting in human ways, it never feels terribly speculative to me, you know what I mean? Like right, that's always right. grounding. Yeah. Yeah. And I love a I love a sort of weird setting, but with yeah, pretty grounded in kind of like character and mm-hmm. and just the the everyday struggles of of the humans. Right. Even if they're living in this fantastical kind of world. So Absolutely. Yeah. Well that sounds great. Emma Slowly, thanks so much Thank for joining you. us. It's been Thank so great so talking to you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been, been so much fun. fun. <laughs> Listeners, you can read Emma's story, The Cassandras, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.